From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. We all know the saying, everyone loves a winner. It's a notion that applies to sports and business. When things are going great for a team or a company, everyone wants to be part of it. When I was running Cree and we were being praised for our breakthrough products, everyone wanted to be on our team. The number of people applying for jobs went through the roof. But that also created a problem for us. How could we tell who really wanted to do the work to solve the hard problems and who just wanted to tell people they were on a winning team? To get past this, I would often ask interview candidates, is your job title important to you? It was an open-ended question that people generally reacted to in one of two ways. Some would respond that they didn't care what the title was, while others made it clear that title was important for them to effectively do their job. It was a way for me to see if the person wanted to join our team for the right reasons, and I never made an offer to someone who was worried about their title. On this week's episode, I talk with Glenn Reed, who has spent the last 30 years solving some of those really hard problems, including developing iPhoto and iMovie, while working for technology companies like Apple and Adobe. He is now working on his next venture, bringing innovation to your laundry room through his company, Marathon Laundry Machines. Glenn encountered some of the same challenges around hiring good people once the companies he worked for became famous. His philosophy was, are you making withdrawal or are you making a deposit? And a lot of people want jobs where they are making withdrawals, as opposed to what I can bring into your company and do. Glenn has seen the power of innovation firsthand and worked directly with some of the greatest innovators like Steve Jobs. He solved enough difficult problems to understand what it really takes and share some incredible insight with us, such as innovation at its core means something new and not everything new is good. I'm actually anti-innovation in some ways, being thoughtful about what you are changing and why it is an important piece of innovation. Or epic failures happen if you cling too long to an idea that wasn't good and takes you a long time to realize it. And you don't need more than three people to do anything. You don't want lots of mediocre people. You want three good people. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Welcome and thank you for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Uh, Glenn, I know that you uh, you graduated in the 80s with a degree in computer science from University of Wisconsin at Madison. How'd you end up at Madison? Uh, like most things in my life, a series of accidents. I have four older brothers, so in a lot of ways they shaped my childhood and they basically did everything better than everyone else, so there's nothing left for me to do. So I kind of drifted through my early part of my life in a very unengaged kind of way. When it came time to apply to colleges, I did the least amount of work possible, like a lot of kids, but I think they came into your seventh period class and signed you up for the University of Maryland where I grew up, and I did pretty well on the PSAT test, so you get on mailing lists and they send a bunch of paper to your house. So uh, there are only two schools in that stack that they both sent an application. You didn't have to write away for it. 
and there was no application fee. So UW-Madison was one of those, and Georgia Tech was the other. I applied to both of them, got into both of them, but I just thought, oh, I'm going to Wisconsin. That's a better school. I like it better. The other piece of it was my degrees in computer science, but I started in mechanical engineering. So, And when you, mechanical engineering, you kind of have to declare your major before you even start. You have to get going. So, And I didn't know what that was either, but it sounded interesting. And yeah, so I signed up as a freshman mechanical engineering major. I switched my major my senior year. Computer science was kind of new way back then, so I was taking classes in it, but I tell people it's kind of the Dr. Seuss version of mechanical engineering. You can make little guys on bikes spinning propellers and it all works great. You know, there's no, there's no rules basically. So it was a much more fun version of building stuff. So I want to I want to step back for a second Glenn. You mentioned you were the you had four older brothers. How do you think growing up as one of the younger brothers? It, can you talk a little bit more about maybe it shaped kind of how you think about things? It definitely was a factor and I'm not sure in exactly how, but they're very capable people in completely different areas and so it was sort of whatever you thought you were going to do there was somebody ahead of you in line that was already doing it. So it gave me permission to do whatever I wanted. Nobody noticed me, you know. One time I remember sneaking out of the house at night just because you th thought you were supposed to, and I'd get outside and there's nothing to do outside, you know, so <laughs> I went back to bed <laughs> and nobody noticed that either. So the other side of that is nothing was going to happen in my life unless I did it, like nobody was pushing me or paying attention to me. So early on, I kind of realized whatever my life is, I'm going to decide it and it's up to me to do something. So you go to California, you join Adobe. If you look back to those early days of your career, what would success have been in the beginning? You know, I've basically never even thought about success. It doesn't have any meaning for me. I just, whatever I'm doing, I do it as well as I can. And I, there's endless things to do. So I just feel it's sort of like eating. You're just always chewing on something. And so success was just not running out of interesting things to do. And it's kind of that simple. I don't care if I win or lose. I'm not competitive at all. I can't get excited about sports, you know. I like to watch gifted athletes play whatever they're good at, but I don't care who wins. And for me, it's not dictated by other people in society. You have to drive this car and have this much money and live over there. You know, I want to have built a bunch of stuff and, and done interesting things and learned things. And to me, if you don't do that, then that's how you fail, just forgetting to do anything. I kind of think of life like sailing where you're kind of going over that way. But in order to get there, you have to adjust to the wind and go that way for a while and go that way for a while. And, and sometimes you change your mind, like oh, that original destination wasn't actually where I wanted to go. I, I like it over here. So the constant monitoring of what am I doing and why, I think, is a big piece of it. So, you know, when it comes to innovation, you know, one of the things I'd like to ask is, do you think innovation is more about process or more about mindset? I would separate innovation from from productization in a way like i'm a product person i like to produce things that other people can use innovation at its core means something that's new not everything that's new is good and i'm actually anti-innovation in some ways there's a lot of tendency especially in computer science or digitally revisable things i should put it that way to throw out the old and make a new one the pursuit of newness means every year they're changing your software and your computer it's not better. It's just different, you know, <laughs> and it's like, why are you changing that? So 
being thoughtful about what you're changing and why to me is is an important piece of innovation. It's like I'm doing something new, but I'm doing it because the old one actually sucked, not because I just want to do something new. And you're uh, you, you're describing something that when I wrote my book about the innovator spirit, the first thing I had to do is define what do I mean by innovation. Mm-hmm. And so in my definition, it's new, but it has to solve a real problem and create real value. What I claim is if it's just new, it's an invention, and there's lots of those. Mm -hmm. But if you don't actually solve a problem and then someone isn't willing to pay you or you create value, there's some tangible value, to me, it's still just an invention. And you were talking about software, but I wrote an article recently about, um, you know, is Apple still innovative? And the reason you reminded me of it is that I was... (laughs) I had just installed Catalina, the new operating system. And all I got out of a new operating system from Apple was is a bunch of my old apps didn't work anymore. Right. And my computer slowed down. Right. And I was sitting there and, and they but had touted new. this as a great new innovative <laughs> thing. And I realized, no, it's not an innovation. It's just new. So to your point, I think there is a there is this kind of cultural thing where it's all about new instead of about actually solving some problem. And uh, what do you think drives that? Part of it is cultural. I think we're taught to want the new thing. But part of it is digital. When you're woodworking or steelworking, there's a point where you just have to stop. There's no undo. And if you cut the board too short, you have to get another board. You know, that it's a physical manifestation. And metal fatigues and it'll break if you bend it too many times. So there's a, you know, thousands of years of people knowing when to stop because they, you just have to stop. It's done. And digital things aren't like that. It doesn't matter whether you're writing a term paper, or building a PowerPoint creating a product, uh, the materials are free and infinite, and you can change them forever, and therefore people do. So, And we haven't evolved to the point where we know how to stop. And I used to tell people the way you finish something is to stop having fun. You know. So let's go back to then that career. So you're at Adobe, and you go to Next, and eventually you end up working at Apple and developing iPhoto and iMovie. Walk us through kind of that thought process, or was it a thought process at the time? Was it just a, a passion for the next thing? Yeah, it was a little of both, I guess. I, I've always had great situations and great companies to work at, and but sometimes the thing that you were doing is done, or the, the people around you change, or the environment is less conducive to getting things done. Each, each time I changed my situation, it was for a different reason, I guess, but when I was at Adobe, I was—I think I was the youngest person there for many years, and I felt that I was capable of a lot more than they were giving me permission to do. I wanted to do big things, and they were sort of, sit down and shut up, Glenn, you know? So I don't sit down and shut up all that easily. So I was like, I got to go somewhere else. And when I left Apple, it was a little different. We all sort of know the macro history of Apple now, but Next acquired Apple for negative $400 million, the way we put it. And Steve Jobs came back to his company and everything. But it was a disaster at that point. They were almost out of business. And the press was always about the beleaguered Apple. And they always had adjectives like that. And they were beleaguered. They didn't have anything that was going well. And he fired a lot of people, deleted a lot of products, kind of turned it around. But most people want to go to work at the cool place. You know, you I want to work at Facebook. They don't know what it's like to actually work at Facebook, but looks good on your resume. It's sort of a resume builder. I was a little different always. I want to work someplace where interesting things are happening and there are smart people and there are as few assholes as possible. So that didn't, I didn't check all the boxes at Apple, but, um, and they rolled out a pretty great opportunity, like go build us an app. You know, there were only three people that even knew we were doing it. And and Steve Jobs was my product manager, and he's drawn my whiteboard, and 
I would go build it. So as as it goes, that was a pretty good job. But it was a little bit of that. Everybody there was there because they wanted to. They wanted to be there, and they were killing it or doing whatever. It's kind of a almost an underdog kind of a mentality. During the time I was there, the company did turn around and started to become a rocket ship. And you know, I built iMovie in nineteen. I get my decades all mixed up. I think it was nineteen ninety eight. Apple hadn't built any new apps in 10 years. You know, they're just all these old things. So and they kind of built an app division and there were vice presidents and were having meetings. And then all of a sudden people were coming into the company because it was a cool place to work and they wanted to have it on their resume. So the room w- would just fill up with perfectly nice, useless people. It's kind of like the hot tub fills up with the wrong kind of people. And you're like, I think it's time for me to get out. <laughs> so it's really interesting you say that we... um as we were building Cree, for years we were the underdog, no one knew of us. And we were able to recruit a person that was there for the challenge and an interesting problem. Let's go prove these people wrong. And that was a really fun phase. And then when we started to have a lot of success, you'd interview people and they wanted to come because you were kind of a cool place to go work. Mm-hmm. And they were just different. They and, and they were not very good at actually solving hard problems. Mm-hmm. And the longer we were able to hold out and only hire people that like to solve hard problems, if you look at our growth cycle, that's what drove it. Mm-hmm. And if you look at every time, and we went through a couple cycles where we got big and slowed down and went through it again, it was literally the, the people changed. And then when we had some trouble, those people left mm-hmm. and we got to do it again. <laughs> and you realize it's it's just a different mindset of the person that wants to come in and take on the hard. They're more interested in the hard problem than anything else. One so other way I think of it is. Are you making a withdrawal or are you making a deposit? You know, and a lot of people want jobs where they're making withdrawals, either their paycheck or their, what it does. You know, what can you do for me on my resume as opposed to what can I bring into your company and do? And and it's amazing. Even job seekers get that wrong all the time. Like, well, how big is my office going to be or whatever? It's just, you know, it's all about what they get. It's like you have this exactly wrong. You're supposed to be coming here to do stuff that we need. <laughs> Tell me how you, how good you are at doing that stuff. But it's it's a withdrawal mentality when you get to the growth phase. I think you've made some comments about there's a lot of people that say they knew Steve Jobs that really didn't, and it frustrates you. And you made a I think you you caution people to not be too quick to believe the stories about Jobs. What is it that you think people get wrong when they tell the stories about Jobs? Or what is it that's misunderstood about him? It's easy to see the the cartoon version of him, you know, and he was all of that. I mean, he's a very driven and emotional, mercurial, all that stuff is true, but it kind of misses the point. And people incorrectly correlate success with, you know, being an asshole, for example, like, that, oh, that's what I have to do to be successful, be like that. So they copy these things thinking that it's the insistence or the whatever it is that that causes things to happen when that's not it at all. And part of the reason that most things written about him are sort of not true is all the people who were there kept their mouths shut and, and still do. And part of the reason for that is he was a fanatic about secrecy. So you sort of early on just never said anything. Most of the technical people around him were there for 20 years. You know, they, he wasn't obnoxious in a room where things were getting done. He was a very good product manager, a very thoughtful person, not humanity thoughtful, but problem solving thoughtful. So if you were in the way, if you were sort of an idiot or, or trying to make yourself look smart or whatever the things were that just basically were 
slowing something down. He could eject you from the room in a fairly unpleasant way. But even the reason he was unpleasant about it, I think, is because it worked. Like he knew that if he said something mean, you would be gone. And so that was the most expedient way. He wasn't going to sit down and talk to you and try and improve your work skills or whatever. It's just like, get that guy out of the room. <laughs> you know, He was fundamentally just always driven by the work. You know, I started a company and, you know, the VCs more or less kicked me out toward the end, which happens and that got sold. And then this guy who came in late, who was sort of obnoxious, you know, he had it on his LinkedIn profile that he was the founder of my company. I'm like, sorry, no, you know, you were A, late to the game, B, weren't even that important. Like, how does that end up on your resume? It's just completely false. But if somebody can't call you on it, you sort of claim it anyway. And I, you know, I called him on him, like, get that off of your resume. You weren't even close to being a founder. So, you know, I worked with Steve Jobs as another one of those things like, you know, you maybe stood next to him in the elevator once, but didn't actually work with him. And working at Apple down the hall from him is a little different than sitting in a room arguing about something for four hours. And, and there weren't that many people who did that, really. I'm not a hero worship kind of guy. And I, it kind of bugs me that that's the only thing anybody ever wants to hear about is, you know, what was it like to work with Steve Jobs? Like, can I tell you about this other thing I did? And no, no, tell me about that. But it is it is a relevant part of my well, life, I guess. Well, look, I think it's um, like I think it's hard when Steve Jobs is was bigger than life here and to a lot of people. And so I think that's their connection to a story. But but I think you make a great point, which is, you know, what you've done is so much more than your relationship with Steve Jobs. So let me take you up on your comment then. And what are the two or three things you've done that you think are the most that you're most proud of? What's well, funny, the the one that leaps to mind it was at Apple, but when I was at Adobe, I saw that you know, Photoshop 4.0 or something would ship with about 6,000 known bugs in a, in a big product. There are that many known bugs when it goes out the door, which is astonishing to me. Like, how could that be? I was strived to have no bugs. Like, wh why would you have any bugs? So that's difficult, but iMovie shipped with about seven known bugs. And iPhoto 2.0, which nobody noticed, we used to ship them essentially January Macworld run up to, you know, November the previous year, we would have to be done and they would bake it onto hard drives and make millions of them. So there's a, a lag between when it was done and when it reached people. And everyone has had the experience of buying a new product and immediately getting software updates. You know, it's because of all the bugs that they found after it was shipped, essentially. And I was like, how do we just not do that? So iPhoto 2, nobody cared by the time you're on 2.0 of your second product, people have calmed down and it's just, you know, give me a new one kind of thing. But we shipped iPhoto 2.0, but we never did 2.0.1. It was so good that we didn't have to do a minor bug fix release. It lasted for a whole year. Millions of people used it and it was 2.0. It wasn't 2.0.3. That's the thing I'm most proud of. And nobody even knows that, you know, you don't notice the lack of a software update. <laughs> It's hard uh, to get credit for the lack of something. Yeah. So if I ship something that people like it, but I know that I did a good job, that's what makes me proud of it. So, And iMovie, there's another story lurking in here where when I got hired to build iMovie, digital video had just come out. Apple had QuickTime video software, but it was all analog. It didn't support digital video yet. So I, got, I was supposed to build a consumer video app on top of software that didn't work and was a daunting task. So Apple acquired what became Final Cut Pro. I don't have any proof of this, but I think 
Steve bought that thinking it was going to be easy to use video app that could be their Apple's video app. And it wasn't. It was in many ways a disaster. It took them eight years and they still couldn't finish it for three years. But anyway, they were down the hall and they had me report into that video group, but they weren't allowed to know what I was working on and vice versa. It was kind of silly, but. So you worked in a video group. You were part of the, the, there's a video group in one part of Apple. You're in this other group. And in theory, you're, you report into the same group, but you're working in secret, not telling each other what you're doing. Yeah. So more specifically, they bought Final Cut, didn't know quite what to do with it, but it was in there somewhere. And I was just one guy. They had about 30 people and I hired two more people, but I wasn't going to report to Steve. So I go report to Will Stein. He runs the Final Cut group, but don't tell him what you're doing. Like Will knew what I was doing, but I would come to his meetings and I wasn't allowed to give status or whatever. And there was paper over my windows inside Apple so that nobody could see in the window and see what I was doing. So yeah, I report to Will Stein, who managed this whole thing. And we're kind of trying to do the same thing, get apps to work in digital video, except that their timeline was a little different than mine. Mine had to be done. And what I saw was when QuickTime didn't really work, they're like, oh, good. Now we have a reason that we can slip our schedule. And I'm thinking, oh, no, what are we going to do? We, we got to ship this app and, and the substructure doesn't work. So like we just built the whole thing from scratch, basically. And it worked great because we're all awesome engineers. So we got this thing to where it was bombproof and basically built the entire video substructure for digital video with the same three people that were trying to ship the app. And we got it done and out the door in nine months, you know. So I'm, I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of the fact that we didn't allow massive things like that to stop us. Like, let's just do it, you know. And somewhere at the beginning of that process, when we were building this stuff, Another VP who will remain unnamed is still there, decided to he should sabotage me. Like, this is bad. He's making the Final Cut team look bad or whatever. So I called into Steve Jobs' office, which was kind of rare. He would usually wander down the hall and find me. But And I went in there, and this VP and the guy who ran the QuickTime team and one other person were in there. And the meeting starts where Steve says, so I understand you're not using QuickTime and that's a big fucking problem, he says. And he stopped. I was like, that was how the meeting started. <laughs> and then everybody's looking at me. I told him what I just told you, like, well, it didn't work and I had to go do this ourselves and we're trying to ship this product. But it was a fairly intimidating situation. And he looked at the, the QuickTime guy and he's like, is that true? Does it not work? He goes, yeah, basically that's true. <laughs> I mean, there's no way around it. It didn't, didn't work. So, and Steve says, well, you know what? I think, I think this guy deserves a fucking medal. And, and he started yelling at this VP like I've never seen anybody get yelled at. And he said fucking medal at least eight times and kicked everybody out of his office. And I was like, that was weird. But they actually had a medal made for me, which I still have in my office. It says fucking medal on <laughs> That's awesome. So I think I'm the only recipient of that medal. So you know, you described this idea. I'm curious. You know, you described having this team, three of you, working in secret. You know, and I've seen a lot of in my experience at Cree. And when we got bigger, one of the challenges was that small team environment got overcrowded with these big groups and stuff. And so in the end, we actually started to recreate essentially a, the light Cree LED bulb was actually developed by a secret team, really mm -hmm. small. Do you think there's a benefit to that dynamic? Do you think there's something to that? I don't think there's any other way it gets done, honestly. 
you don't need more than three people to do anything. I mean, Linus Torvalds wrote Linux all by himself, you know, and it just, you'd have to be good, but you don't want lots of mediocre people. You want three good people. <laughs> it's, it's that simple. So I don't believe any team should be over, I mean, maybe five if you round it up a little bit. But, and there, you know, the old book, The Mythical Man Month, there's a, there's some evidence to show, and every, it's obvious if you think about it, as a team gets above a certain size, you have to spend time communicating and, and that turns into meetings. And the other thing I do believe is, and I think part of the reason Steve was as good at building products as he was, I think there needs to be one person, at least one person, who has the entire project in their head. Like they know the entire thing top to bottom. And it's not like, well, I'll go ask that person how the undo mechanism works or whatever it is. It's just like, you know, the whole thing and you own it and, and you can see it. And I've always designed products where I'm pretty sure I can build this myself in the allotted time, but I'm going to hire people and we're going to do it with more than me. But I, I know I can get it done because I know exactly what's required. I've thought about it. I know all, where all the edges are and I can do it. And Steve Jobs was like that. He was into everything. He knew how, you know, printing worked and accounting and electronics, it, just because he knew he needed, the more he knew about everything, the more clearly he could, A, tell if it was, if you knew what you were talking about, but is this even going to work, you know? And, and it's not an accident that one guy in a dorm room at Harvard can build an entire product. It's just that there aren't that many people like that. There. But the ones that are, they don't go out and hire a team of 10 people. They just go do it. And and I think there's a pretty strong correlation between small teams and actual important products in the world. We so. used to say uh, in the early days of Cree that, uh, you know, where I'm at a 30-person startup, we're trying to invent a blue light that could someday get into the lighting business. And we're not even sure what the physics is supposed to do on this. And people would say, well, are you worried? And I'd say, you know, I went to work and every day about 95% of my energy was on solving the most important problem that needed to be solved. And 5% was on the overhead. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, we're competing with companies with 100 times more people than us, but they've got about 5% of their energy on the most important mm -hmm. problem and 95% on everything else. And because there's so many people creating all that chaos, they rarely actually get to the thing that matters. And the ability to focus and to solve the problem that matters. It, it, it is a human dynamic issue that large organizations inherently struggle with. If all those other people don't have an important role, then what do they do? The other thing is fear. I think you need some fear from somewhere. And if you're in a cushy company where if the product fails, you've still got a job, you'll do something else. You have nothing to worry about typically. And, you know, Steve Jobs created fear in people. That was part of it. You know, I might not have a job if I don't get this done. And uh, startups are all about that. You're afraid all the time. And I stole another joke from sailing that I used to describe, you know, what it's like to work at a startup. Stand in a cold shower with all your clothes on and rip up $100 bills. It's, it's kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I want to transition to what you're doing now. So you've, you have this new company called Marathon Laundry. You start it in Silicon Valley and you decide to move it to Milwaukee. Do I have the story correct? Mm -hmm. What's the logic behind that? Well, a series of accidents, like many things in my life, but I'm kind of a mercenary at heart. I like interesting problems, but I don't really care what they are. And people are like, why are you making washing machines? And I don't have a good answer for that, except that I saw that somebody should be doing this. And 
the washer dryer idea came back to me when Internet of Things started to happen and everything's getting smart in the home. And I thought, well, if you took that and you put a, an interesting brain in it and made it, you know, sort of like take an electric car, but also put a big touch screen in and make it connected to the Internet kind of thing. That's not why you buy the car, but it's pretty cool. So and we realized that we would have to build a whole new controller anyway, because to be a washer and a dryer. So I started thinking about that again and looking into it more deeply. And what I saw was washers and dryers evolved separately. They just 50 years apart because of infrastructure and stuff. And nobody ever put them back together, except in Europe and Asia, where I found out dryers only exist in the U.S. They don't have them in you know China. And in England, they don't want to drill a four-inch hole through their stone wall or whatever. So these combination machines exist in countries where they've never seen a real dryer. So they're, they condense the water to get it out of the machine. So it evaporates into the air and then it condenses and then they pump it out, which is basically it's a rainy day inside your machine. So they don't work very well. And then we realized that Whirlpool makes all their money on the dryer because there's nothing in there. So it was a perfect disruption scenario that it's possible. It's a good idea. The incumbents aren't going to do it because they lose money. Some startup's going to have to do that. I kept thinking, man, somebody should do that. And another year would go by. I'm like, man, somebody should do that. <laughs> then I realized that maybe it's going to be me. So I just kind of focused on that and picked up the ball and started to run with it. And uh, we got it to work pretty early on. And we're still in manufacturing uh I don't know if hell is quite the right word, but trying to figure out how to really make it in volume. Um, but we were in Silicon Valley. You know, it's, I've lived there for all my adult life pretty much. And and I was out in Wisconsin visiting. My wife's family still in, mostly in Milwaukee, and I went to school in Madison, so I'm Wisconsin-friendly, even though I'm sort of a Californian now. I'm looking around at the commercial real estate listings, and we were paying about $3 a square foot for our building that the lease was about to be up. And I'm looking in Chicago and Milwaukee and all these places just out of curiosity. And it's also $3 a foot. I was like, that can't be right. That's weird. But I realized I had the radio button set to per month versus per year. So we were paying $3 a square foot a month. And you know, out here it was $3 a square foot a year. So I'm like, well, that's a 12x multiplier. <laughs> Then I started to actually take it more seriously and actually look and really kind of ponder the whole thing. And I realized, A, this is a manufacturing town and there's expertise, universities, a lot of smart people. It's a cool city, all the things you know. But And there are also potential partners. Uh, there's a commercial laundry company in Ripon that we're talking to about helping us make the machine. And so I, in some ways, I'm I'm worried about Silicon Valley turning into just a, I don't know, sort of like the video game industry, just sort of, or, or Hollywood. It's sort of like it's driven by all the wrong motivations. And and so I feel like this is uh, a much better place to be. So it's gone amazingly well. And part of it is everyone wants to know why I moved this stuff to Milwaukee. and But they want to know in a curious way, like, how do we get more of you? And how do we make this a place that people want to build businesses and stuff and is that where the valley institute idea came from exactly yeah and, and it's still being shaped but it's the premise is you know bringing silicon valley thinking to menominee valley which is where we happen to be <laughs> so the valley institute and i'm not sure yet if it, people want to hear what i have to say we'll find out and i'm going to try and get some of my 
friends and people that I've worked with to you know, get on a plane and actually land in Wisconsin instead of flying over it. You know, you like it. And so kind of just build that bridge. If you look back on your career, what is your biggest failure? There have been so many. I couldn't single out the biggest one. I don't like phrases like fail fast, but I think people who fail, that's how you do it. You just get to the hard part quickly, find out if it's going to go or not. And if not, do something else. So the failures tend to be quick and many as opposed to epic failures. I think epic failures happen if you cling too long to an idea that wasn't good and it just takes you a long time to realize it. <laughs> so I haven't had any epic failures, really. I've had lots and lots of micro failures. And I don't seek to fail. I think that's the wrong way to put it. People sort of tell you that, like, go fail a few times. You should always try to succeed. But but really, failure shouldn't be tied to the person. I think you, you can do a bad job of something. But find out if the thing that you are thinking of doing is something that should be done. A good idea reveals itself if you test it correctly. So failing isn't quite the right word unless your goal is always just every idea must succeed. The opposite of success is failure. But testing an idea is more like any other kind of test, like that test didn't work. You know, It's really about the learning. Yeah. yeah. And the, I mean, science is, is the same thing. You know, you sit there and you try experiments and is that considered failure if your experiment didn't work? Not usually. It just means you have to run a different experiment. So a series of experiments to get to something is a different. And that's sort of been my career is a series of experiments, some of which went well and some of which didn't. How about any advice for young entrepreneurs? A couple pieces of advice if they said, hey, what's the one or two things? I want to go start a company. I have an idea. What, would the, what were the couple things you'd leave them with or get them started with maybe is the right way to say it. The thing that you just said would be what I would say is, I want to start a company, I have an idea, separate those two things. If you just want to start a company because you don't want to work for somebody else, that's a very different thing than this idea should be done and I'm going to go do it. Sometimes you're not the best person to execute your own idea. And a recent phenomenon has been find a co-founder. That's a really good idea because you're basically recruiting at the very beginning, somebody who's different from you, who maybe has the skills that you don't have, that the two of you can actually do a better job than just one person. So, And I guess the other bit of advice I would have is ideas are cheap and plentiful and don't get attached to them. Have another idea. People get their arms wrapped around an idea and won't give up on it sometimes, and it's just not a good idea, or it's, there's a better one adjacent to it or something. And if you've had one or two, you're going to have more and just keep having them and wait till the, a good one comes along or do all of them or something. Glenn, I want to, one, I want to thank you for being a guest. Uh, your story is incredible. You know, your insights and perspective are actually, they reinforce some of the other ideas I've heard as I've talked to other innovators. And actually, you've also given us some insights that I think are different and new. And I think it's super helpful. Thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Awesome. Well, have a great day. Thank you. Thanks to Glenn for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing his insight on innovation and the people that make it possible. He has an amazing innovator spirit, and I have no doubt that he will find a solution to just about any problem he sets his mind to. He touched on a really important concept, which is how fear can actually be incredibly useful to focus the mind when he said, you need some fear from somewhere. If you're in a cushy company where if the product fails, you still have a job, you'll do something else. You have nothing to worry about. Typically, startups are all about that. You're afraid all the time. 
It reminded me that innovation often takes courage. And a quote from Nelson Mandela, who said, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues, because I think we all know things that could use some innovative thinking. Please feel free to contact us through our website at www.innovatorsontap.com. We're always open to new ideas or critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey, and let's go change the world. Oh, 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 oh,